Constable Schertz, and again, today's topic is Don't Be a Victim, How Can We Detect and Avoid Fraud? And I'll ask you to keep your, your questions brief and to one or two questions. Thank you. Welcome, Constable. <laughs> for being with us today. That was a really enlightening uh, presentation. Uh, a simple question. Am I too paranoid and not even trusting Facebook? <laughs> well. <laughs> no. How's that? No, I think, uh, you know, when I do these presentations, I will usually do a segment on social media. And just for the sake of time, I had to cut a lot of things out for the presentation today. But uh, that is a Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, any of these social media apps or programs uh, can be um, a huge source of grief for you. Uh, and they can be sort of the origins of, of identity theft. So my recommendation is if you are on Facebook, and just on a side note, uh, senior citizens are actually the fastest growing demographic on Twitter. Uh, if you're using those social media platforms, do a little homework, do your due diligence, know what the privacy settings are on there, because you can post pictures of the grandkids on Facebook or your vacation plans or whatever, and if you don't have your security settings set appropriately, anybody and everybody in the world can look at that if they want to. So you need to do a little homework and make sure that you know how to limit access to that information to just your friends or just your family. Thank you very much for such an informative presentation. It's too bad we couldn't hear all of it in detail. Anyway, my name is Frances Schultz. Back in the end of the 1980s or the beginning of the 1990s, I got my first scam with the Royal Bank of Canada logo on it, I printed it off, took it to the RCMP in Lethbridge and to the Royal Bank in Lethbridge to alert them. And they were working on trying to stop that kind of thing then. Do you think we'll ever be able to stop these kinds of scams? Well, that's the second yes, no question I've had. So the answers are easy, no. <laughs> but, uh, how have they done? <laughs> They're still going, right? The scams are still going. So I think as long as we are fallible humans and subject to human nature, uh, you know what? If, if something looks good and it's, we think we can make some money easy, we're, we're tempted by it. So uh, the, the short answer is no. Unfortunately, as technology evolves, these scams evolve along with it. And uh, the best we can do, like I said at the start, is just to mitigate that, to make as many people aware of these scams as we can, give you some tools, and hopefully make you a little more savvy in, in detecting and avoiding this stuff. Yes, sir. I'm Trevor Page. Thanks for telling us about some of the major scams that there are out there. My sense of things is these are getting 
much wider um, and different and you more or less admitted that in answering the last two questions. Uh, my interest is what you're doing about it. When you receive a call that somebody's had a scam and they tell you about it on the telephone, what is the law enforcement that is actually done here in Lethbridge? Um, and the second question is how big is the team? How many people are there full-time working on fraud in the local police station? Okay, I'll answer the second question first. The Economic Crimes Unit currently has one sergeant and three constables. So for the Lethbridge Police Service, there's basically four of us. Full-time. Four of us full-time dealing with fraud, yeah. Now, uh, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of fraud that gets investigated uh, to completion by our frontline uniform officers. So the four of us aren't dealing with everything and anything to dealing with fraud. Take, if you will, a call that you get uh, about the Microsoft scam, as you put it. You get a complaint in from a member of the public in Lethbridge. I've just been attempted, at least, to be scammed on this. What is the follow-up action you take? Now, in that particular case, uh, the, our economic crimes office probably will not investigate that file. We might get a notice that that report came in, but typically in that type of file, uh, if you call the police, you're going to get a uniformed patrol officer response. They're going to come to your house, they're going to take a statement from you, and in the case where you're getting that call to fix your computer, uh, they will, they will do what they can to trace that number or to see the origins of that phone number. The problem with the scams that we get on the phone and the internet now, though, the world is a much smaller place. So whereas a few years ago, if you were getting a phone call like that or you were getting a scam, it was somebody in Lethbridge, right, or, or maybe Alberta that was scamming you. The problem now is that phone call you're getting is coming from Nepal or it's coming from India. And to be quite honest, if we're dealing with something across the pond, we cannot do anything for you. So do you have anything you can tell us about the success of law enforcement to counter this problem? You're a part of it right now. We're standing in front of as many people as we can saying, we're standing in front of as many people as we can, and we're saying, you know what, when someone phones you to fix your computer, it's a scam, don't fall for it. Uh, because, like I said, if the email comes from West Africa or the United Kingdom or somewhere else, we will trace the origins of a phone call or we will trace the origins of an email as far as we can. As soon as we find out that email originated overseas, uh, that's where our law enforcement jurisdiction ends because foreign law enforcement typically isn't going to help us with that. Hello, Peterson. This is my name. Uh, thank you very much, Dan. Uh, I asked a question at the table earlier, maybe you could answer again uh, in front of everybody. Uh, Cybercrime is not dealt with by the Lethbridge Police Service as of right now particularly, uh, but you were saying that uh, you're looking at uh, employing some people in that regard. We're trying. Anything that you would categorize cybercrime, um, a lot of that does come to us. We're the ones dealing with that. 
but we do not have a formal cyber crimes unit or tech crimes unit. And uh, my boss, who's in charge of economic crimes, is actually spearheading an initiative. He's trying to get that ball rolling. So we have dedicated people, dedicated resources to a specialized unit for those specific things, cyber crimes. Yeah. Hopefully in the near future, that's something that we can, we can deal with here. My name's Robert Smith. You mentioned Craigslist and advice on that. What about a site like eBay, which I have never used and always had some trepidation about using it as either a buyer or a seller? Typically, with an online auction site or an online classified site like Kijiji or eBay or Craigslist, there are literally thousands of them. Uh, each of those sites, they have uh, very thorough instructions on how to properly use the site and how to protect yourself. And by and large, if you follow those steps and use the site appropriately, you are protected and they're very safe. Your information is encrypted. Uh, those eBay in particular is basically a, a middleman, right? So if I want to purchase something, this brings buyers and sellers together and uh, it's like an escrow service. So they, I send the money, eBay holds onto the money, the person sends the product, and then eBay does the swap to make sure everybody gets what they uh, what they planned on. Now there are fake phishing emails. There are fraudulent messages that come out into your inbox that say it's from e eBay uh, or Kijiji or others. So you still have to be vigilant. You have to do your homework. But typically, if you're on the site, you're following their instructions, and you're doing it properly, you're safe. Terry Shellington. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, I hear you saying that the solution is really in education rather than in um, legal and uh, in enforcement. Uh, I got a phone call a day or two ago that uh, appeared to be a scam call from a group called the Western Canadian Cooperative Lottery Association, I think it was. And um, when I hung up, I called the local police station about it and she directed me to the 1-800 number, 1-888 number at the bottom of your screen. So I called that and I stayed on the line for about half an hour and then went on to watch the curling news. Uh, no, I'm guessing that, <clears throat> that there's very little staffing at the national level either, and maybe because it's really futile calling in and, and telling about somebody who called with an accent that, that it's really about education, not about uh, not about complaining to the police about anyway. You want you hear the comment? I, I suspect it's not well staffed and and not very useful. The complaint line. The uh, now you're referring to the anti fraud center. Yep. Down here. Yeah, I can't comment on you know what kind of luck you'll have when you try that number because I call it myself and there's times when I've gotten through no problem. There's times when I have. Uh, the real the value of the anti fraud center uh, is that they provide statistics and trend analysis and things like that for law enforcement. So they can, and they're public education as well. So if you go to their website, there's a lot of information on there, like I've presented to you today, how to avoid fraud and things like that. So, but their, their mandate is to sort of track the trends across the country, what fraud is happening now, um, giving you tips of how to prevent that. And the, the reality is, uh, police don't have the resources or the time to investigate every time your phone rings. We would love to. We would love to. But it's like a like triage at the hospital. This person lost $10,000 in a fraud. This person 
got a phone call from India, but nothing happened. We have to, you know, we have to decide, okay, where, where, where are we going to have the best success and where are our resources going to go? So this is sort of a, when the police can't do anything or are unable to, at the very least, the anti-fraud center, it used to be called phone busters uh, years ago, at least the anti-fraud center will take that report, add it to their database, and track those numbers of statistics. My name is Mary Shillington. Thanks uh, for your presentation and your sense of humor. That always helps too. Um, is that if we can't do anything locally or even within Canada? I will have two questions. First one is uh, I gather that now more of the fraud things come from overseas; that they're not just here in Canada or the U.S. Whatever. The, the other piece is then what's happening on an international level within crime and police systems? Is there any kind of move to try to unite people so that the, this whole thing can be addressed in some ways? Now, that's a, that is a good question, but I don't think I can answer it probably to your satisfaction because uh, I think law enforcement, no matter where you are, are struggling with the same issues. Uh, well. Name any business or any entity today and uh, do more with less. So law enforcement is struggling everywhere to try to uh, manage all this stuff with the resources that they have. But I know that uh, we do have a fair amount of success with crimes that originate anywhere in North America. So Canada and even the United States, if we're dealing with something that we can determine originated there, uh, we can work on that and we can have some success. Internationally, what's being done? I can't really answer that. Uh, I would just be speculating. Um, but there are international organizations that are dedicated to fraud awareness. But it's a it's a game of catch up. Police are always trying to catch up. We're reactive in a lot of ways, and just when we've got a handle on one type of fraud, there's another type that we're going after. So. Hi, <clears throat> my name is Henning Mundell, and um, my question is. Whether you have seen statistics or we, whether you can envisage or relate to um, breakdown of gullibility in terms of age, gender, and the third one I'm going to give you, you're not expecting, political leaning. <laughs> and I'm going to give one background statement on that is south of the border, it seems that people that are of the strong Republican persuasion really have this black and white American dream. We could all get this, and therefore, maybe it is my turn. Okay, first of all, I'm not falling for that one. I might have been born at night, but it wasn't last night. I, I can't give you statistics on whether men or women are more gullible than the other. I wouldn't, even if I had the statistics, I'd be too scared to tell you. <laughs> However, the, the, the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre does put out statistics. That's another, uh, if you go onto that anti-fraud website, uh, they do annual reports that tell you what types of crimes are happening, where the trends are, the, the annual statistics. And uh, that category of seniors, or the little older sort of that 59 to 75 age range, uh, according to their statistics, are the, the highest uh, victims. Those are the ones that are victimized most. Trusting. Yes, I wouldn't say gullible. I would say, I would say trusting, like you said. And I mentioned that in the, in the presentation, right? It's the handshake generation. 
when you can shake someone's hand and the deal was done and you trusted them, that was that was great. Sadly, we no longer live in that world. I wish I know, by the way, Henning is in that age bracket. <laughs> Just still barely. <laughs> One more year, then I'm out. Is he at the low end or the high end of that bracket? <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. My name, my name is Henry Heinen, and I have two approaches here. One is the no-call list that was, in, you know, we got that a few years ago, and that doesn't have any bearing on all this scam stuff. And my second one, uh, observation is, in my house, and we still have kids in the house as foster parents, if we have call display, if the number and the name don't make any sense, our kids know and we know we're not going to answer it. Because my wife's position is, if it's of importance, they will leave a message and she can check that later on. Any comments on those two observations? Um. The second point you made there is is, uh, is good advice, I think. Um, if it's a name or a number that you don't recognize and you have an answering machine, let the machine do its job. You don't necessarily have to answer the phone. Just because the phone rings, you don't have to pick it up. Okay. Um, and I'm trying to remember what the first one was. The call list. The call list. Uh, that is a worthwhile endeavor, but it only applies to legitimate businesses. Like There are a lot of companies out there that that do telemarketing or mass marketing via email, regular mail, what have you, that are legitimate businesses, and it's their advertising uh, approach. And they have, everybody in here is on a mailing list somewhere, right? Your phone number, your email. Uh, if you subscribe to that do not call list or whatever, those legitimate businesses are bound by that. And you won't get any more calls from Walmart or Costco or whatever. Uh, but just like everything, it doesn't apply to a bad guy. Right? Someone who's trying to scam you doesn't care if they're doesn't care if your number on a do not call list. Okay, um, I was at the presentation you gave at Provence, and you talked about uh, what happens when the grandparent scam takes place. Could you give us a little more detail on that? Because I thought it was quite fascinating. Yes, thank you for the reminder. She asked me that when we were at the table, I said, you'll have to remind me because I won't remember once I get up there. But uh, when I, and my parents are okay with me sharing this example, but I mentioned that my parents were, fell for that grandson scam, and they didn't lose anything. I mean, it, it turned out okay, but the way that it worked was my father, who is just about stone deaf, but still insists on answering the phone, <laughs> picked up the phone one day, and on the other end of the line is a young man's voice. He says, hi, Grandpa, it's your favorite grandson. Okay. And so, of course, my father, just, he loves all his grandchildren equally. He's not going to volunteer who his favorite is, or even if he has a favorite. So he says, no, I'm sorry, who is this again? <laughs> oh, come on, Grandpa, you know who it is. It's your favorite grandson. So, of course, now his mind is working, and he's trying to think, well, who does it sound like? Whose voice is that? And so he says, so I'm going to say Billy. That's not his real name, but you know, Billy, is that you? Yes, it's Billy. So now this fraudster has a name, right? Yes, Grandpa, it's Billy. Well, eventually my dad gets frustrated because he can't hear, so he's going to go take the phone to Mom. And what does he say to Mom when he hands her the phone? Here, it's Billy. Okay. So now mom takes the phone and she already believes that she's talking to her grandson without any question, right? 
So you can see how easily uh, you can you can get pulled into that. So of course the person on the other end of the phone, grandma, I'm in trouble. This is what's happened. I need you to you know send twenty five hundred dollars or whatever for to get me out of jail and pay for the car repairs and blah blah blah. Don't tell mom because she'll be so mad. Well, because m my mother has a police officer for a son, she's she's not sending money anywhere for any reason. She's not even going to send money to me, right? So, so she know so she does believe this is her grandson, but she is coming up with solutions. Okay, you know, Billy, this is what we're going to do for you. You know, I'm going to make these phone calls. We're going to do this, 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 and pretty soon, you know, this old lady's not helping me. Just hung up the phone, right? So, and even after they hung up on her, you know, she was. It took her a while. And it took a lot of family members to sort of put her mind to rest that yeah, that was a scam. That wasn't actually Billy you were talking to on the phone. She wasn't. She wasn't sure. So it's uh, it's insidious, you know, in, in how they they manipulate people. But uh, yeah, be on the alert. Am I allowed one more question? Sure. You're at your limit, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you should come up here. <laughs> Go ahead. Dan, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, we hear about websites being hacked and you know, after the health services, uh, a whole bunch of people's medical records being uh, exposed to other people. Uh, what what do you guys do about stuff like that? Uh, is there anything you can do about that after after the fact? Uh, well, on a, on a local level, you know, if it's a local business or or, or company, whatever, then obviously we're going to do all we can to, to try to figure out the origin of that. It's not quite the way it's portrayed on TV. It's not some 13-year-old kid living in his parents' basement with 20 computers around him and he's hacking into government databases. And, uh, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Usually, with something like that, it's an internal breach, and you can pinpoint the employee or staff member who ultimately was responsible for giving somebody a password or accessing something illegally themselves. Uh, quite often, if it's like Alberta Health Services, they'll do, as a corporation, they'll do an internal investigation of their own. If they find out that something criminal has occurred, it'll come to the police to investigate. Um, we, we don't always deal with something that's criminal. Sometimes we deal with things that are maybe regulatory in nature, civil in nature, where you just got to get the lawyers involved. Um, but if it's something that uh, falls under the umbrella of the criminal code, then we'll get involved in that. I'm not sure if that answered your question or not, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll do all we can as far as tracking phone numbers, emails, trying to determine the source of the, of the breach. Hi, my name is Bob Campbell, and uh, thank you for your presentation. Very insightful. Uh, you mentioned leaving, uh, waiting, and letting the answering machine take the call. Uh, some of the CRA calls, I've had two or three of them, they do leave messages that, that they're going to arrest me. Um, so, but you're still here. I'm still here. <laughs> they, they, they think some of us were born yesterday or something. Uh, my question is, I think also a lot of times fraud is not reported uh, because people are too embarrassed to report it. Uh, and I'll give you one example. I know um, several years ago, uh, I knew someone, or several folks actually here in southern Alberta, who were scammed by a very smooth-talking uh, person from south of the border. And uh, he was from Chicago. And uh, he had this uh, scheme that was too good to be true, uh, where if they gave him 
a certain amount of money, and he had uh, this vast amount of money that was being held escrow in trust, and that, that they needed uh, money for you know the transaction to occur and so on, and that their their investment was going to be returned tenfold. And uh, fortunately, I didn't have enough money to get into it, so therefore I can now brag about it. Um, but I know a few extra dollars in your wallet. Now, maybe a different story, right? Several friends did uh, get it taken for quite a bit of money, and I know that they never reported it to anyone because they were too embarrassed. Yeah. So I just want to make and you could comment on if you like. That's a good point, and I'm glad you brought that up because we did have that discussion at our table. That as far as fraud statistics go, they are highly underrepresented highly underreported for that very reason and especially when we're dealing with seniors because it's that feeling of I should have known better I should have seen that I feel so stupid for doing that and and our advice is please report it please let us know these these bad guys are good at what they do that's this is their full-time job right <laughs> and they've honed their skills over years of trial and error and they're and some of them are very very good and slick at what they do so and like I said at the outset it's not about prevention it's about mitigation I, I, there's no magic solution that's going to save everybody from being scammed but uh, if everybody would just be that little bit more suspicious and that little bit more thorough when they before they make a decision um, that's all we can ask right take that extra second to ask your spouse or your neighbor or give me a call say what do you think of this do you think this is a scam before you have fun last question by Francis all right, I'm back, and I'm hoping that I can scam you into letting me ask another question, Francis Schultz. Um, one of the things that comes out is that in many of these, for example, if I'm renewing some of my magazine subscriptions, or if I'm subscribing to a local group that's going to provide me with veggies, they use PayPal that you pay through. It's still going through on my visa, but PayPal is the intermediate there. And then later on, I start getting emails from, quote, PayPal, saying that there's a problem with my account that it needs to be looked into. Do, is, are they able to get lists of people that use PayPal or not? Um, the short answer is yes. Short answer is yes. They, oh, yeah. if, okay. you, if, you are, if you subscribe to any service, that information is out there in cyberspace. That database can be accessed by people that are determined to look at it. Yeah. But and there and, and there's fraudulent PayPal emails coming around. There's fraudulent iTunes yeah. emails that come around. If you've subscribed to iTunes, um, really no end end to it. But uh, but like I said, when you get those emails, don't ever take them at oh, face value. No. no. Do I, contact that entity yourself using a published uh, contact number. Okay, but. I, I'm not personally subscribing to PayPal. The institution that I'm buying something from is subscribing to them and using them for the money transfer, uh, but I'm still vulnerable, right? But that, you can be. You can okay. be because that transaction exists on that company's, in that company's database. Okay. It's, it's easy to get paranoid and hide your money under your mattress and never leave your house, never turn on your computer okay. after a seminar like this. But by and large, when we do the common sense things, we're, we'll be okay. Okay, so I'm better off than Henny because I'm over eight, so I'm safe. <laughs> Next year. Next year, I'm over seven. That's right. Okay. <laughs> oh, you mean you're wiser, Francis. Okay. 
you're on, Beth. Okay, I, let's all. Oh, just just before, I appreciate your, the time you give me today. Just sort of as a, uh, a closing thought, I'd just like to send you home sort of with a with a challenge, and that is, you know, think about one thing, even one thing that you might do or that you might change in your life or change in your in your system of habits that might make you a harder target, or that might be, you know, whether that's changing your password that you haven't changed in six years, or uh, you know, shredding shredding sensitive documents that come in the mail when you're done with them, as opposed to just tossing them in the trash, or you know, update the security software on your computer because it hasn't been updated in six months, or you know, whatever. Check those privacy settings on Facebook. Make sure that your Facebook posts aren't going out to the world. Just determine what what one thing can I do this week to sort of tweak or change uh, something in my life that's going to make me a harder harder target, and then share that with your with your friends and your family. Thank you. Please remember that just like, please remember that Constable Dan is available to give talks to other groups. Yep, absolutely. So we can get in touch with him if you've got another group. group. Okay, thank you.